His and Hers Horror features two adults discussing horror movies, serial killers, and other spooky content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to His and Hers Horror. My name is Tia. And I'm David. And I apologize in advance because I didn't realize that we were accidentally doing basically three birthday episodes in a row. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that. That's a good point. So, because we did my birthday. Right. And then we did 1963 Horror last week, which was for my mom's birthday because she did her Patreon pick. Right. And then we decided... Hey, John Carpenter's birthday is in January. Let's do an episode about John Carpenter. That is just a month. Well, you know what? Fuck it. 2020 is over. Let's start out with some birthdays. Let, let's party for a little bit. And on and you know what? This is our show. We can do what we want with it. Yeah, we could do a month of birthdays if we wanted we to. We could. We're not gonna. No. <laughs> I, did t- I did toy with that idea when I realized earlier today that Toby Hooper's birthday is also in January. Uh, but no, we're going to save that for next January. Okay. So today we're going to talk about the man, the myth, the legend that is John Carpenter. Mm. Now, in talking about John Carpenter, it would be very easy for us to go into the stuff that kind of everybody knows. Right. I did not want to do that. Mm. Obviously, he did The Thing, right. which is a great film, but we've already covered it. Right. He did Halloween, but we touched on that in several other episodes. And we may do a full Halloween retrospective. Yeah, like some the point. franchise as a whole. Right. We might do that in the future. And then there's some of his films that don't really fit into our general theme of horror. Right. So, like right. Assault on Precinct 13 and. Uh, they Live? They Live is kind of a sci- more sci fi than horror. Right. So, yeah, we decided we were going to focus on some of his lesser known stuff. Which can be a lot of fun. Oh, my God. It was so great. Oh, I loved doing it. Several of the movies that we watched are movies I had seen before, but it had been a minute. Of the ones that we're covering in this episode, I had only ever seen one of them. And I really only technically saw it because I was at the dorm room. There was a lot of drinking and card playing going on. Uh, I I basically remember the colors of the movie. That's about it. Which one was that? In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, okay. I think you had when we were watching The Fog, which is another one of his more well-known movies, so we're not really going to go into it. Mm-hmm. But I think when we were watching The Fog, you had said that it might have been on like in the background when you were a kid. Yeah. But other than that, you didn't really remember it. Yeah. I mean, I remembered basic beats of it, but I, mm-hmm. I didn't... Uh, really pay attention to it when I was little. I appreciate it more now. As I didn't like it when I was younger and I first watched it, but I like it better now. I, w- I was a big time gore hound when I was a kid. So, I mean, if, if there wasn't blood spewing everywhere yeah. and like people screaming constantly, then it Fair. didn't really catch my attention. So this Fair. creeping fog. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, having rewatched it, it you know, it is a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I can see why Little Me didn't like it. Yeah. Or at least didn't pay it any mind. Fair. So before we get into the movies that we watched and are going to discuss, I kind of wanted to talk about John Carpenter himself. Sure. So, like I said, his birthday is this month. Uh, His birthday is actually the day that we're recording this, the 16th. Oh, cool. Which I didn't know. Well, that's super topical. Yeah, I just, I, I I knew it was January, but I couldn't remember exactly what date. And then I looked today and I was like, oh, shit, okay. 
So yeah, uh, January 16th, 1948. Nice. He was born in Carthage, New York, but grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, his dad was actually the, a music professor at Western Kentucky University. Oh, wow. John actually attended Western Kentucky University for like his main college stuff and then went to film school at USC in LA. Right. Another thing I didn't know, he and I are the same height. Really? Yeah, we're both 5'11". Hmm. Which I thought was weirdly interesting. Well, I mean, you know, when, when you see someone is, you know, an actor is the same age as you or or has the same birthday as you or is the same height, you're like, hey, you and me, we got something together. There are some actors that I'm taller than that I'm like, I'm taller than you. Like, I'm taller than Tom Cruise. A lot of people are taller than well, Tom yeah, Cruise. Well, yeah, but you know what I mean. That's the joy of camera angles. Fair. He was actually married to actress Adrian Barbeau for about six years. Mm -hmm. They have a son together. His name is Cody. And he is currently married to producer and script supervisor Sandy King. Sandy King's actually produced a lot of his movies from like the 90s right. and the early 2000s. Okay. I knew this already, mm -hmm. but I looked into it a little bit more, like, later on, if that makes it, like, while doing research. Right. He scores a lot of his own films. Yeah. Which is super rare. Like, most I, directors don't do that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> from, from the research I was doing, he's basically, he's he's been in the editing room. He's, he's done direction, production, acting, mm -hmm. creating film scores. Uh, I do have a neat thing about one of his film scores. Go for it. Did you know that he obviously did the, the score for Halloween? Yeah. Composed it in three days. Three days? Three days. That's interesting. I mean, the movie was shot in 20, so... Yeah. Well, and that film in general, that came from a budgetary thing. Because mm -hmm. I think, if I remember correctly, Halloween didn't originally have a score. Right. Or they just needed to throw something... I don't I don't remember exactly what it was, but he does most of his scores using a synthesizer, mm -hmm. which... I and, thought was kind of cool. And it's and, actually really good to listen to. Oh my God, yeah. He has several albums on Spotify. Mm -hmm. There's one that's called Anthology, which is like the themes from major films that he's done. So it has the themes from The Thing, They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But there's also, he has a set that's called, I think it's called like Lost Themes, that are Ooh. things he's written that haven't actually ever been used for anything. Oh, nice. Yeah, I haven't listened to that stuff yet, but I really want to. I'm going to have to add that as something to, to jam to this week. Yeah. In addition to scoring a lot of his own films, he also wrote the opening theme for this TV show called Zoo. Okay. That I haven't seen. I don't know if anybody watches it. I just thought that was neat. It's a new show? Uh, New-ish, I think. Okay. I don't know. Hmm. He sometimes writes his own scripts, but under a nom de plume. Oh, okay. So, like, sometimes he'll he'll have himself be listed as the writer, but other times, for whatever reason, he'll list somebody else. So, like, for Prince of Darkness, he wrote that, but he has the writer listed as Martin Quartermass, which is actually a reference to the main character in The Quartermass Experiment, which is a sci-fi film he was really into at the time. That's really cool. And They Live, he wrote, and the writer is listed as Frank Armitage, which is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft character henry armitage right and the reason he did that for that one is because they live it's based a little bit off of a short story and he also and there were input from multiple sources and multiple people yeah so he didn't feel like he could take full credit for that one which is why he listed it as like frank armitage to basically be like it's an amalgam of people kind of thing and you know that actually speaking of they live you, you know that uh, really famous line from they live 
I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum. And, and I'm all, all out, out of bubblegum, bubble yeah. Uh, he d- he refuses to take credit for that line. Well, he didn't write it. Roddy Piper wrote it. Yeah, because Roddy Piper, or under the guise of Rowdy Roddy yeah. Piper, professional wrestler, uh, he walked around with a notepad, basically, and for their bits that they would do, you know, to, you know pre-match and post-match type stuff. Yeah, wrestling yeah. quips. He just would think of stuff and write it down, and he totally came up with that, so... Yeah, he actually brought that notebook to set and showed it to John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And that was the one that they picked because they thought it would go with the character really well. Right, right. I, I just thought that was really neat when I saw it. It is. That. It's, and that's one thing about John Carpenter is he is totally open to taking suggestions from his actors as long as they're good ideas. Right. If it's a good idea, he'll use it. Yeah, and I think a lot in the reference of framing it as food, because everyone has a frame of reference for food, Mm -hmm. he is not against throwing in an ingredient or a seasoning that he hadn't even thought of bringing in, as long as it works with the dish. Yeah, that's actually a great analogy for him. Uh, I spend half my life using food analogies to get things through to people. No, I get that. So another fun thing about John Carpenter... Mm Mm-hmm. He's directed a lot of films that are considered, like, cult classics. Mm-hmm. So he actually does have a film in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Okay. Now, what film do you think it is? If mm. you had to guess, based on his... His entire... Is, is, it, it, is it something that I that would probably be obvious? It's one of the more obvious ones, yes. Is it Halloween? It is Halloween, yes. Okay. I knew this already about him, but I just think it's really fucking cool. He's an avid gamer. Yeah, yeah, he is. He spent, he and his son, they used to apparently play like Sonic the Hedgehog a lot when his kid was growing up. So he is not only an avid gamer, but he is supportive of video games as an art form. Right. Which a lot of people aren't. Mm -hmm. As far as like, when you think of like professional directors and stuff like that. Right. Um, they, they look at it as a, you know, if if they can even consider it an art form, they look at it as a lesser art form. But right. I mean, it, it, it's it's an active art form mm-hmm. or, you know, something that you have to actually be engaged with. It's not a passive thing like a film. No. Do you want to know some of his favorites? Sure. I'm curious how many of these will be like, oh, that's obvious and how many you'll be surprised by. So obviously the Sonic the Hedgehog games, because he, you know, plays those you just with mentioned his son. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he played those with his son. So right. that's kind of one of those things where like, there's a, there's a nice like personal. Right. Memory to that. Dishonored. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed 3. Okay. The God of War franchise. Hmm. I wonder what he thinks about the reboot. I don't know. I'd love to ask. Him. I'm not sure. The Fear franchise. Okay. And Dead Space. That's not a surprise at all. He has actually expressed interest in making a Dead Space movie. Oh, gosh. Which I would fucking love. Given, like, the way he has people do special effects for him. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, because you are... Look at the thing. That's already, like, Dead Space light. Right. It would be so easy for him to grab people he knows to do a fucking Dead Space movie. I would love that. You know, if he if he loves Dead Space and he likes Dishonored, he might like Prey. He probably would. He might have he might have played it. The information that I'm going off of that with the video game stuff, that was as of like 2013. Oh jeez, yeah. So I couldn't find anything more recent. I do know so Hideo Kojima, as everybody who knows about Hideo Kojima knows, is a huge fan of movies in particular he likes John Carpenter's movies. <laughs> yeah. So the 
studio that actually owns the rights to the Snake Plissken character and right. Escape from New York and Escape from L.A., mm-hmm. they actually wanted to sue Hideo Kojima for basically like infringing on their copyright with Metal Gear Solid franchise and, you know, all the parallels between that. Because John Carpenter is such an avid gamer, he told them not to. Right. I mean, there, there's even a bit in Metal Gear Solid 2 where where Raiden runs into... Call you know, me s- Pliskin. Ir- Iroquois, Iroquois Pliskin. And he's Solid Snake, so you've yeah. got Snake and Pliskin. Pliskin, yeah. He's got it's, an eye patch. It's, it's not it's, subtle. No, it's <laughs> it's very obvious. Hideo and, Kojima is a lot of things. Subtle is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the truest statement I've heard all year. Yeah, fair. Granted, we're, we just started. We but, just started, but you know, it's already been a fucking hell of a year. Anyway, as anybody who's watched John Carpenter's films knows, he frequently collaborates with a lot of the same people. Mm -hmm. And I have the main ones. Okay. Or at least the main ones that people will know. One being Kurt Russell. Okay. So Kurt Russell. He's been in five films. uh, Main ones being The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, and Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Okay, so that's four. I wasn't going to do all of them. Okay. Now I'm trying to remember what the fifth one is. Shit. (laughs) Sorry. I was doing my notes. I asked. I said. The other one, the fifth one was a TV movie called Elvis. Oh, okay. In which he played Elvis Presley. So that was actually the first movie they worked on together. Sorry I asked. No, you're fine. (laughs) I won't ask again. Was it worth it? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. All right. Adrienne Barbeau. Mm -hmm. Who, uh, again, was also his wife. Was also his wife. wife. Yeah. The role in The Fog was actually specifically written for her. Oh, cool. Uh, so she was in The Fog, Escape from New York. Um, she's also done some voice work on The Thing. She's the voice of the computer. Oh, okay. Yeah. That cheating cheating computer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Charles Cyphers has been in six of his movies. I'm not familiar with that name. Charles Cyphers, he was uh, Sheriff Lee Brackett in Halloween. Okay. He was also in Escape from New York and Assault on Precinct 13. Okay. Peter Jason... He has actually been in seven different films of John Carpenter's. All right. Again, that name doesn't ring a bell at all. He was in Prince of Darkness. He was the one of the older scientists, the guy with suspenders. Okay. Okay. He was also in They Live and mm. Village of the Damned. Okay. And then uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Well. Has been in four John Carpenter movies. Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, and Escape from L.A. Cool. Because she did computer, or, um, not computer, um, voice work. In Escape from New York and like, Escape like from New Like an announcer yeah, voice. Something like stuff. that. Yeah. yeah. I just thought that was really neat. There are other actors, like two of the other actors in Prince of Darkness, their roles were written specifically for them because John Carpenter had so much fun working with them in uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, cool. So I'll get to that. Okay. Because that's actually the first movie I have listed to talk about. Oh, awesome. Uh, so Prince of Darkness. I'd never seen this movie before. I had neither. It's I, weird, but it's not bad. I didn't even know it existed, and I'm glad I watched it. I knew it existed, but that was because there was a period of time when I worked a desk job, and we would be particularly slow, where I would pick a year, and I would read the plot summaries for the horror films that were released that year. Hmm. Or I would pick a director and read the plot summary for their films. I, I did. Go, there was one day I basically read the plot summary for every John Carpenter movie that had been released at the time, because what the fuck else was I going to do? Fair, fair <laughs> enough. 
I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have access to much on, online. I had access to Wikipedia. That was about it. Mm. So Prince of Darkness released in 1987. Okay. Obviously directed by John Carpenter, but it was also written and scored by him. It's got a great score. It's so good. That was the one I was, I was on my way to the mall after work to run some errands. And I was listening to that John Carpenter anthology mm-hmm. album on Spotify. And that theme came on and I was just kind of listening to it. And then like that one part just drops and I out loud went, ooh. That's that's <laughs> the one that when you got home, you, you said, hey, can I can I play this? I have to play this for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really good. I would love, to, I, if I could ever talk to John Carpenter and be like, can we use that as our show's opening theme? That would be, oh, I love it. Oh, it's so good. The, the cast, and we're doing, so we're going to do something new with the cast where I'm going to, we received some constructive criticism mm-hmm. and that not everybody knows actors the way I do. <laughs> well, that also includes me. Uh. That is true. So I'm going to start, when I mention uh, a cast, if I can, I'm going to try and mention at least two other things that they have been in to give people context. Okay. There are some actors that that's going to be really fucking difficult, I realized today. Because they haven't done a whole lot else. So, well, then um, we can mention that. I know. That's, I have it written out that way. So for Prince of Darkness, with, for cast, we've got Donald Pleasance mm. as the priest. I'm just going to call him Father Don because they don't ever name him. They just call him, in, even in the script, he's just the priest. Right. So I'm right. just going to call him Father Don. Yeah. Donald Pleasance was uh, Dr. Loomis in Halloween. Mm-hmm. He was also Blofeld in the James Bond film You Only Live Twice. See? There we go. I know. Victor Wong plays Professor Howard Birak. Victor Wong was also Walter in Tremors. Mm-hmm. And Egg Shen in Big Trouble in Little China. Jameson Parker is Brian Marsh. The only other thing that I could find of note that Jameson Parker was in was he was AJ Simon on the show Simon and Simon. <laughs> Which I remember watching as a kid. I never, I to my knowledge, I never watched Simon and Simon, but I'm like, this is the biggest thing he was in, so this is the thing I'm going to mention. I, I that this the theme to Simon and Simon mm-hmm. still occasionally plays in my head randomly. So that's neat. So yeah, there's there's that. So I, I have had a lifelong connection to Simon and Simon. That's that's why I kept looking at him, going, "He needs to have a mustache. He he's supposed to have a mustache." He did have a mustache. Did he have a mustache? Oh, he did have a mustache, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, it was the guy from the other guy from the other movie that didn't have a mustache that had a mustache before. That's right. Okay. Okay. Tom Atkin. Yeah. From Tom- the Fog. Yeah. Because he was in Halloween three. And he had also. a mustache. And he that. had a mustache in Halloween three. That's okay. right. Sorry, blonde guys. You know, it, I don't know. Yeah, I get it. Next in the cast is Lisa Blount, who was Catherine Danforth. I couldn't find much that she had been in. She did a lot of guest TV stuff in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s. And then uh, Dennis Dunn was Walter. Okay. He was uh, Wang Chi in Big Trouble in Little China. Right. And there is actually a cameo by Alice Cooper as a possessed homeless man. A very creepy possessed homeless man. Yeah. You know, he actually initially wasn't even cast in the movie. Hmm. He asked John Car. So Alice Cooper's manager was a producer on Prince of Darkness. Okay. And Alice Cooper asked if he could just come to set and watch them do one of the special effects. Oh, cool. And John Carpenter was basically just like, do, do you want to be in it? <laughs> <laughs> so that bit where he kills the guy with the part of the bicycle. Yeah. That was actually from Alice Cooper's stage show. Okay. That was his own fucking prop that he brought to set. Nice. I know. 
I um, brought toys. I brought things. I brought things with me. It had a budget of three million dollars. Box office of fourteen point one million. Nice. Not too bad. Yeah. Uh, so the plot. Let's get into the plot. Yeah. It. It. It's a fun ride. It is. So when the priest of an abandoned church in Los Angeles dies, Father Donald, as I'm calling him, finds his diary and a key to the church's basement. Inside the basement, he finds this big cylinder that is filled with this swirling green liquid, as well as a book that has been rewritten many times over in various languages. They basically keep, they figure out that they've been like, they'll write over the top Mm -hmm. of the old language in the new language, which doesn't seem like it would be effective, but whatever. So Father Donald contacts his friend and physicist. No, he's not a physicist. He's a physics professor. Um, Howard Birak and asks him to investigate the contents of the room. So they want to decipher the book, but they also want to know what the fuck is the deal with the cylinder. Right. So Birak recruits several of his students, as well as a linguist and some other scientists to kind of put together a group to figure out what the fuck is going on with this stuff. Yeah, there, there's there, the team that's investigating comprises multiple departments from from the university. Yeah. There's a couple people from the physics department. There's people from the math department. There's the one girl who's the linguist who's like translating the book. Mm-hmm. Some computer science folks. They've got a also. radiologist, the one with the glasses. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the one with the glasses. Yeah, that's uh, no, that's legit. You guys, how they keep describing her? Where's Susan? Susan, the one with the glasses. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <sighs> So after they start translating the book, they discover that the contents of the cylinder are basically the son of Satan. Yeah. Who has been kept locked in this cylinder in this church for centuries until the time when mankind possessed the technology to defeat him for good. Because like one of the things that they're finding in this book that they're translating, they're finding differential equations. Yeah. But this book predates differential equations by thousands of thousands of years. Right. Because differential equations weren't even a thing until like 1693, according to some notes that I found. Cool. So unfortunately, the cylinder, the the contents of the cylinder were already awakening Mm -hmm. and their research kind of awakens it further and, and, and it was affecting the homeless in the area too. Yeah, that was part. That was part of the awakening. It's like it was already waking up, and their messing with it just made it worse. Yeah, I actually found the way it was affecting the homeless in the area more terrifying than making them zombies, because they were just standing there. They would just stand there. Yeah, it's it's creepy. Well, and then it starts to, some of the liquid escapes the cylinder mm-hmm. and starts, like, possessing the yeah. scientists. So, at first it possesses Susan, the, the radiologist with the glasses, and then more and more. The one that I like the most who gets possessed, I think his name is, like, Colrad. Oh, yeah. Where he gets possessed, but then he's also deeply religious. So, after he gets possessed, he tries to kill himself. Mm-hmm. But because he's already been exposed to this green liquid... It just reanimates his corpse. It's fucking... Oh, my God. It's a weird movie. It's kind of hard to explain. Basically, once the cylinder, the stuff comes out and fully possesses the chosen one, they will then draw the anti-god into our world to bring about the end of days. 
because apparently they're the way that this movie does things because of like theoretical physics and quantum mechanics and stuff like that. It's it's very much for everything there is an exact opposite. So, uh, so if there is a an antimatter exactly. Yeah, so right. if there is a god, there must be an anti god. So basically, what's trapped in the cylinder is the son of the anti god who is going to draw his father through into our world. Father! (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) It has some good effects. Yeah, it's got some good effects. The the characters, I actually was surprised. uh, This sounds bad, but I was surprised I actually got attached to several characters. Mm -hmm. Because even the smallest of characters had character to them. Yeah. You know, there, there was levels of likability and right like i could relate to yeah certain people even off of things other people said to them i'm like hey that's not cool yeah my chief complaint is they keep showing <laughs> they keep showing in the sky the sun and the moon basically being like aligned mm-hmm. and i kept thinking that that was going to be significant like maybe there was going to be an eclipse and that was gonna and that was why in. everything right. was going on now because otherwise, there's not really a reason why everything is happening right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so what you're saying is they kept showing you a picture of a steak that was on the menu, and you're like, ooh, I'm getting a steak, I'm getting a steak. And they're like, no, you got chicken strips. Kind of, I guess. They kept showing me something that I thought was going to matter, mm. and it didn't really. See, I thought you were going to complain about the worms on the window. No, I'm fine with that. Yeah, there's worms on a window. There's bugs. There's a lot of bugs in this movie. Y'all. Oh, yeah. If you don't like bugs, maybe don't watch this. So I have two interesting, or a couple interesting facts. Mm-hmm. So this is the second film in what John Carpenter calls his Apocalypse Trilogy. Okay. So the other two films are The Thing right. and In the Mouth of Madness. Cool. The parts that were played by Donald Plessence, Victor Wong, and Dennis Dunn were written specifically for them by John Carpenter because he enjoyed working with them so much previously. That makes sense. Because he had already done Big Trouble in Little China mm-hmm. and Halloween. Right. And he liked working with those actors so much that he just like, I'm going to write you a part in this, which I think is cute. <laughs> hey, I didn't know what to get you for your birthday, so uh, I wrote you a part in my, in my next movie. I imagine that's how Quentin Tarantino does things sometimes. <laughs> John Carpenter actually states that he set out to make a film that was atmospheric and dreadful. At the time, he was noticing a lot of derivative horror films and wanted to try something new involving quantum mechanics and religion and the intersectionality of science and religion. Uh, John uh, Carpenter himself is actually an atheist. Right. But at the time he was, before he was writing this, he was reading a lot of books about like quantum physics and and theoretical physics and stuff like that and just thought it was really interesting Mm -hmm. he did later say it didn't really translate very well but i could see where he was going yeah 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 i thought the whole science meets religion intersection i I don't see that very often in in film usually i wish they do it more usually you see it as a conflict and here they're saying hey we're trying to solve this and Mm -hmm. no one's sitting there going but this is a this is a faith-based thing rather than a fact-based thing it's very much a can it be both yeah. Kind of deal, which I don't, you don't see very much and I think would be more interesting to explore. Right, right. All right. So the next film I have on our list, I'd never heard of this movie before. And honestly, though, I'm not really surprised mm. given all the stuff about it. And that's Body Bags. Yeah, I had never heard of this. 
So Body Bags is actually a 1993 TV movie that John Carpenter did with Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. Right. And also fellow January. Yes, fellow January baby. Uh, It was written by Billy Brown and Dan Angel because it was initially so. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing with Body Bags, you guys. (laughs) It's a ride. (laughs) It's no. Well, we'll get to that here in a second. Give me a minute. Okay. It was originally intended to be a television series in the vein of Tales from the Crypt. Okay. But for Showtime. Ah. And I see. so basically the the vignettes and stuff that are that make up this anthology film were originally made to be part of that television show. Okay. But then Showtime, for whatever reason, decided not to do it. Because they were scared. Well, no, but I, I couldn't find anything that said exactly why they it, some stuff said they changed their minds or they pulled the plot. I don't know. For whatever reason, they decided suddenly not to do it. Okay. But the shit had already been filmed. Mm-hmm. And so what they did instead is they basically re-edited it into a television film instead. Fair. So it's actually not that bad. There, it, Despite the fact that there was one vignette that I basically had to have my eyes covered the whole fucking time. But we'll get into that. That was actually one of my favorite ones, too. I know. I just couldn't. You guys, you know how I am with body horror. And this one, I just could not. Could mm-hmm. not. I tried. You saw me try several I, times. I did see you try. And we'll, and we'll talk about it when we get to that part. Okay. So the way I have this broken down, because normally you guys know I'll do the characters and the and then the plot and stuff. Because this is vignettes, mm-hmm. I broke it down into each one. Okay, cool. So the first one we have is called The Gas Station. Yes. Oh, oh, um, just atmosphere out the wazoo. So good. So basically, the plot summary for that one is a college student working alone at a gas station is stalked by a serial killer. That's that's it. Yeah, basically. That, I mean, these don't have to be super complicated. No. Stars Robert Carradine as Bill. Robert Carradine, people will know as Lewis from the Revenge of the Nerds franchise. Mm-hmm. He was also the dad on Lizzie McGuire. Yeah. Alex Datcher is Anne the girl who's being tormented. Mm -hmm. She hasn't really done, I mean, she has a bunch of TV spots on her IMDb page, but that's about it. Okay. David Naughton as Pete. David Naughton was actually the main character, David, in American Werewolf in London. Right. And then there are cameos by Wes Craven and Sam Raimi. Yes. That that was wild. Yes. It's, because it's this gas station that's literally in the middle of nowhere. At night. In the middle of night. This girl, she's a psychology student, and it's one of those gas stations where people can't come in. Right. It's They've basically got the like slidey drawer thing. Yeah, and you're in a box, mm-hmm. and it's kind of linked to like a mechanic. Right. A little bit, and she just keeps kind of getting skeeved out by weird guys. Oh yeah, the the guys in it are. The guys yeah. in it are gross. Yeah. The, yeah. Ugh, fucking misogyny, patriarchy, bullshit. One of them didn't even wait. Until the second line he said to her to try to try a pickup line. No, it was. Uh, it was it, ugh. I, I I don't know. Maybe it's just maybe it's just me and the way I look at stuff now. But like whenever a guy is talking to a girl who's like in the service industry and he's calling her like honey and babe and sweetheart, I'm like, dude, just shut the fuck up. Yeah. Just and, stop. And honestly, trying to pick up on somebody in the service industry. Yeah. I mean, don't hit on somebody while they're at their job. Yeah. Especially if it is their job to pretend to be nice to you. Yeah, because then it makes them really awkward. We hate that. As as someone who has been a waitress and a retail worker, we fucking hate that shit. Mm -hmm. Because we can't just be like, no, fuck off. We have to continue to be nice to you as you're being gross. Anyway, moving on. 
So the uh, the second vignette is called Hair. Mm. I'm going to try and get through this. You can do it. I believe in you. So a middle-aged businessman, self-conscious about his hair loss, undergo- undergoes a treatment that turns out to be really fucking gross. And highly effective. Highly effective, but really fucking gross. Mm-hmm. So Stacy Keach plays the main character in that one. His name is Richard. So awesome to see Stacy Keach. I haven't seen I haven't seen him in in film or television in many many years, and just to see him, it was like bringing my childhood back. Yeah, uh, Stacy Keach was uh, the notable stuff I have listed for him. He was Cameron Alexander in American History X. Okay. Uh, he was also Henry Pope on Prison Break. Mm. The Warden. Yeah. That was Stacy Keach. He also did a lot of stuff in the in He did. He did a ton of shit 90s. back in the 80s and 90s. David Warner is Dr. Locke. David Warner, actually, most people will know from Tron. Right. Because he was the, the bad guys in Tron. Mm-hmm. He's also the voice... I didn't know this. He's the voice of Dr. Wrecker on The Amazing World of Gumball. Are you serious? I'm fucking serious. Wait, so he's the voice of Dr. Wrecker. Dr. Wrecker, yeah. Wait, just... Rob? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that is uh, David Warner. He also played Van Helsing on two episodes of Penny Dreadful. Okay. Sheena Easton is Richard's girlfriend, Megan. Mm-hmm. Sheena Easton, most people will know her for her music career. She actually did uh, the theme to For Your Eyes Only. Right. Um, another Bond connection. Another Bond connection. Uh, she's also done several like Broadway and West End musicals. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of neat. And then there are cameos by Greg Nicotero and Debbie Harry from Blondie. Nice. Yeah. So let's talk about hair, I guess, since we have to. I hate you guys. I fucking hate parasitic organisms. I fucking hate them. They're so gross. This actually kind of reminded me of that creep show episode. Oh, yeah. With the uh, weight loss thing. With the weight loss thing where it turned out they were all being like infected by a parasitic organism that eats fat. Yeah. And that's why they were all losing so much weight. This, he goes, so Richard honestly has no reason to be really that self-conscious. His girlfriend does not give a shit that he's, that his hair is thinning. She literally does not care. And his girlfriend, again, is played by a young Sheena Easton, and she's very cute. Right. And and actually, she gets a little irritated at him. Uh, I mean, at one point, what was that, shoe polish or something put it put in his hair? Or he, that... that spray, that spray on hair shit? Yeah. Yeah, no, she actually gets more pissed that he cares so much about his hair. Yeah. Honestly. So he goes and gets this experimental hair treatment from this place. After my first treatment, I, I bought, bought the, the company. company. That's what the doctor keeps saying. Yeah. He's got. All oh, these and his nurse is back crap crazy. That's Debbie Harry. Yeah. And she's back crap crazy. She is. She's back crap crazy. Like, I feel like she's related to the aunt from Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp. Yeah. yeah. No, I got that. So he gets this treatment. And overnight, he goes from his hair being very thinning. short and thinning to fucking Fabio levels of oh, yeah. long, luxurious hair. And it looks great. It does look great, but he starts to get sick. And he starts to feel like worse and worse and worse. Oh, and the hair doesn't stop growing. The hair doesn't stop growing. It also doesn't only grow on his head. It grows in other places. Mm-hmm. Oh, ugh. Just, ugh. Uh. Yeah, it turns out the hair is parasitic alien worm babies. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking gross, you guys. Okay, so the last vignette, well, the last full vignette, because we're going to, because there's also the wraparound. Right. Is called I. 
a religious baseball player receives an eye transplant after a horrible car accident, and it turns out that the eye belonged to a serial killer and necrophile who was recently executed. Right. So, basically, it's the the classic, I, I got a replacement limb slash organ. Whose organ did you give me, Doc? Yeah. Oh, it belonged to a serial murderer and rapist or some shit. Right. <laughs> Why? Is that a problem? Yeah, apparently it is a problem, because apparently whenever you get an organ donated to you by a serial murderer or something, the organ is possessed and turns you into a serial murderer or something. Or at least a grouchy asshole. Yeah. no, Well, like, he gets brutal. So it stars Mark Hamill as Brent, the baseball player. Which is just a trip to see him in horror. It is. It's so great. I'm not going to tell y'all who the fuck Mark Hamill is, because you know who Mark Hamill is. You know what Mark Hamill's been in. Google Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Twiggy plays his wife, Kathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twiggy's actually mostly known for her modeling work during the 60s. Mm-hmm. She act- She also currently occasionally appears as a judge on America's Next Top Model. Uh, yeah. And then there's a cameo by Roger Corman. See, all these horror icon directors are doing these well, cameo like, bits. It's like, hey, what are you doing, Wes? Well, that's the thing. The horror community, we're such, we are legitimately a community. So a lot of horror directors and horror writers, they all know each other. And from doing shit over the years, like John Carpenter's friends with Stephen King. Right. And shit like that. So like, of course, if, if you can have your friend, who's also a horror icon, do a cameo in your movie, you're going to do it. Right. I would. Yeah. So the eye, it's really weird. It's not bad, but it's the same kind of thing. Like, I've seen that kind of deal before. I mean, um, it was done well. It was done very well. It was just not really anything new. Mm-hmm. So then we have the, the framing piece, which is the morgue, mm-hmm. where basically John Carpenter is, the character's only ever called the coroner. Yeah. And he's the one who's kind of introducing all the vignettes, because the way that they do the framing device is... It's called body bags because the characters that turn out to be the main ones from them, their bodies have been so horribly mutilated that the police have to put them into body bags. Right. Because they can't just have them left out on a coroner's table because they would make a mess. So each bag is basically... Each bag is a story. Is a story, yeah. And Um, he basically works like the the crypt keeper. Kind of, yeah. Just... A little less cackly and a little more crazy wild, drunk Wild-eyed and weird, drunk on formaldehyde. Yeah. <laughs> but that wraparound story also features cameos by Tom Arnold and Toby Hooper as morgue workers. Mm-hmm. I already gave you all my fun facts about this because it was my fun facts were that I had to keep my eyes covered during hair and <laughs> it was meant to be a TV show and it that didn't happen. It it Seriously, check it out. It's It's not super gory horror. Well, granted, this is also the kid that, or, you know, coming from, from someone who, who, like, before the age of 10 watched The Exorcist and I Spit on Your Grave and, you know, all these, the, I, I grew up on yeah 80s slashers, so maybe it is gory for some people. There are some bits that, again, you because of how I am with body horror and, like, parasitic stuff, Hair was particularly difficult for me to listen to because I didn't watch it. <laughs> I thought it was great. We were eating. Were we having pizza? I think we were having pizza. Yeah. I was just like one hand covering my eyes, the other hand like holding my slice of pizza while I ate. You're a trip. I know. I love you. I love you too. 
so the next movie we have is In the Mouth of Madness. Yes. In the Mouth of Madness came out in 1995. Mm-hmm. Again, directed and scored by John Carpenter. This one, the score actually, I I even remember saying this to you, especially the main theme really reminds me of Metallica. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's got a great score. It's the, the opening theme itself sounds a lot like bits and pieces of it kind of sound like Enter Sandman. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so good, though. It was written by Michael DeLuca. The cast includes Sam Neill as John Trent. Mm-hmm. Do I need to tell people who Sam Neill is? Just in case. He was Dr. Grant in, in Jurassic Park. Yeah. I mean... I. And he's been in other things, too. He's been in other things, but that's the main thing people will probably know him. People in our key demographic, that's the main thing y'all will know him from. Oh, that guy from Jurassic Park. Yeah, he was in Jurassic Park. Julie Carmen plays uh, Linda Stiles. Mm-hmm. She hasn't really been in a ton of stuff. The main thing I found for her was she was uh, Sophia Stavros on Falcon Crest back in the day. Okay. And then I have... Uh, Jorgen Prochnow is Sutter Kane. He was Duke Leto Atreides in the 1984 Dune. Okay. He was also Sergei Bazhov on 24. Okay. Uh, and then Charlton Heston is Jackson Harglow. Didn't that also have What's-His-Face from uh, Ghostbusters 2? Yeah, the guy who plays Vigo the Carpathian. Yes. He's, he's, he's one of the townspeople. Yeah, he's also in it. In so. uh, Hobbs End. I don't remember the name of that actor, but yeah. Because yeah. I remember, because we had to pause it for a second, and we paused it on that guy's face, and I'm like, why the fuck does that guy's face look so familiar? And so I went and looked up the movie, and I'm like, oh, okay, and David's coming back from the kitchen, and he's like, what? And I was like, now I figured out why I recognize that guy. He's like, why? And I go, he is Vigo. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Yay. That was right before he shot himself in the head. The character. The character, not the act. No. I wouldn't joke about someone's literal suicide. No. So it had a budget of $8 million, box office of almost nine. Mm. But here's the thing that you'll learn when you look at John Carpenter's movies. John Carpenter's movies, for the most part, tend to not do well in box office wise. It's in home video where they gain a cult classic and just blow the fuck up. Right. Which is kind of sad for him, but also like, at least... They later get later on, mm-hmm. you know, kind of start to blow up. So while it may initially not do well, it lives on. It has yeah. a second life on home video. Yeah. And I mean, I remember back in the 80s and 90s, like going over to a friend's place or friends come, you know, coming to a party. People would have backpacks. And I mean, the stuff in them were Nintendo cartridges and VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. And only half the time were they porn. Most of the time they were <laughs> horror movies. But well, sometimes, sometimes you know, tapes get mixed up. Well, and sometimes you get stuff where, like, a lot of the things that are considered cult classics, like John Carpenter stuff, are things that I would have gone and seen had I been alive and of the age I could have gone and seen them when they were first released. Right. So, like, Granted, you would have been hiding your eyes a quarter of the time, but... Not... Okay, only I'm, for... Only for the thing. I'm not judging. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying... Some of his stuff does get a bit body horror. A little horror-y. bit. Is that a word? Horror-y? I don't know. It sounds weird, but whatever. Fuck it. Let's mm. fuck it. We'll do it live. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the plot of In the Mouth of Madness. When popular pulp horror writer Sutter Kane disappears while working on his latest novel, skeptical freelance insurance investigator John Trent is hired 
by Arcane Publishing to either find Kane or the manuscript. They basically, don't, they don't care either one. They're like, either bring him back or bring back our property, a.k.a. the manuscript. Right. Because they've already money. Well, because they've already, they've already been promoting it. There's already, they've already had it licensed to be made into a film. They, there's a lot of money writing on this book that hasn't even been published yet. And shit's going down because people have been demanding it. Think of like video games that get delayed mm-hmm. or movies that get delayed. Yeah, these people are getting pissed about a delayed book. Oh, yeah. They're getting real upset. So Trent learns Kane may be in what was previously believed to be the fictional town of Hobbs End, New Hampshire. Mm. Along with editor Linda Stiles, Trent heads to Hobbs End, but their journey there and subsequent time spent in the town becomes increasingly bizarre. They soon realize Kane's work isn't entirely fictional, or perhaps it is their perception of reality that's fictional. Yeah, it seems pretty straightforward until it starts kind of... It does some things to your brain. Yeah, it's very... The entire film basically could almost be looked at as an homage to H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. It's very, I mean, there are several times in the film where they quote Sutter Kane's work. And those quotes are almost entirely taken from H.P. Lovecraft stories. Yeah. The film actually in general is often referred to as Carpenter's contribution to the Cthulhu mythos Mm. and the works of H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft, great writer, terrible person. Right. Uh, we will cover that in, a, in an episode at some point. <laughs> yeah. That... I do not want anyone to misunderstand me. H.P. Lovecraft was an amazing writer, wrote some really scary shit, but he was a terrible, terrible human being. <laughs> yes. Sutter Kane is actually kind of an amalgam of Lovecraft and uh, Stephen King. Okay. Yeah, I, I could see that. Although in the narrative, there are is actually a character that says Sutter Kane is more popular than Stephen King. Well, I mean, if you're an amalgam of the two, then yeah, you'd be better than ha- half of you. That's so. fair. Last fun fact I have before we can go into the movie a little bit. That wall of monsters at the end, mm-hmm. that was not several monsters being controlled individually. That was just one single effect that was kind of like... It was on a vehicle-like wheelbase okay. that had to be turned with a crank. It actually, at one point during filming, ran over Greg Nicotero's foot, and he had to be taken to a hospital. Oh, no. Yeah. So, yeah, this fucking movie is so weird, but also so good. <laughs> I weirdly enjoy it. Yeah. I it, feel like I shouldn't, but I but I, I don't know. It, I don't know how to describe it. I'm, I'm going to go back to food. It's like if you try something that you've never tasted before... And you take a bite of it and you're like, mm, I don't know if I like this. But then I, you but then, you know, you, you finish that bite and then you go in for another bite. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, you've eaten the whole thing. You've eaten the whole thing. And now you're saying, OK, this is what I want. I I think we have enough to, to make this again, maybe on Friday. Yeah, it's it's really good in that. But I, I remember watching it when I was younger. I probably watched this for the first time about 15 years ago mm-hmm. and not really getting it. I get it much better now. Oh yeah, as an as a more of an adulty adult, if that makes sense. <laughs> an aged adult, a, a, an an elder adult, instead as opposed to a young adult. There, because there were just some con. There are some concepts that just don't really make sense when you haven't really lived very long. Existential dread. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, because basically, so the movie starts out. It's basically. The, the bulk of the movie is being told retroactively by Trent after he's been returned from Hobbs End and been admitted, uh, admitted to a mental asylum. 
Sorry about your balls. I'm sorry about your balls. He kicks an orderly in the junk and then is like, I'm sorry about your balls. (laughs) I love it. But he is... So he's telling the story to a doctor in the asylum of everything that's gone on. And it's just so, it's so weird. Mm -hmm. Because there's, there's hallucinations. There's people that have read Sutter Kane's work are going crazy and committing murders. It's, it's all, it's very odd. It's hard to explain. Right. Especially when there's, you know, questions of what is reality. What's real, what's not real. Because again, Trent is a skeptic, so he believes this is all just a big marketing ploy. Right. And he believes that his, you know, personal reality is... Is what's... Is, is reality. what is real. But as that starts getting bent and manipulated and he can see and touch yeah. and taste and experience what is the new reality basically i can touch this desk that means this desk is real but then it disappears but then stuff starts changing and manipulating and he starts seeing things that he can't explain and it just it makes you also question what whether what you're seeing is reality or are you just dreaming or are you a character in somebody's story Mm. fire the writer (laughs) This is one of the ones, so this is one of the ones that if you, I I actually do recommend if you have a chance to find a copy of this and watch it. I think we rented it on Prime Prime for like $5 maybe. Yeah. I do, it's, it's good. Some of the effects haven't aged well necessarily, but it's still very, it's an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. And I do recommend at least checking it out. So the last two things I'm going to mention are at one point... Back in the day, there was a television series called Masters of Horror, mm-hmm. where each episode was basically a short film directed by a different horror auteur, basically. Right. So John Carpenter did a couple episodes. Uh, Mick Garris did a couple. I know Lucky McKee did some. I, other big horror names, basically. Right, right. So I want to talk about the two that John Carpenter did. Okay. Because I want more people to go out and watch some of this shit. It's so good. And they're only like an hour. So you're not going to take up a ton of your time. Uh, So the first one is called Cigarette Burns. Mm -hmm. Came out in 2005, written by Drew McWeeney and Scott Swan. This one actually not scored by Carpenter, uh, scored by his son, Cody. Oh, really? Yeah. Cody getting in the biz. Cody actually scored both of John's episodes of Masters of Horror. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, So the cast, it features uh, Norman Reedus as Kirby. Everybody knows who Norman Reedus is now. Uh, he, he's that guy from Boondock Saints, right? Boondock Saints, Walking Dead, Death Stranding. Death Stranding, back to Kojima. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything's a loop, man. The other main actor who's in it is Udo Kier, plays a guy named Bellinger. Udo Kier was uh, Dragonetti, one of the heads of the vampire families in Blade. Okay, yeah, I think yeah. he's the one whose teeth they pull on the beach. Right. And then he was also Ralphie in Johnny Mnemonic. Okay. So the plot of Cigarette Burns. This movie is wild, y'all. I remember liking it, but rereading the plot, I was like, fuck, this movie is wild. (laughs) Uh, So deeply in debt, rare films dealer Kirby has less than a month to produce $200,000 to save his small theater. Eccentric film collector Bellinger hires him to find a copy of La Fine Absolue du Monde, uh, which translates from the French to mean the absolute end of the world. The film, which shows the torture of a literal angel of God, Hmm. yeah, literally an angel being tortured, supposedly sparked a homicidal riot during its film premiere 30 years ago 
after which all copies were supposedly destroyed. But Bellinger has reason to believe that one copy remains. As Kirby looks for the film, he finds a trail of murder and suicide in its wake, and shit gets real fucked up. It's so weird. It's so good, though. So the reason that this Bellinger guy thinks that there's still a copy of the film somewhere is because so Kirby's at this dude's house. This guy's like a millionaire. So he's got his own private theaters. Great big fucking house. Right. He takes Kirby down to the basement where there is just like this emaciated man chained up and what looks like a pair of angels wings hanging from the wall. Well, when Kirby goes around to look at the guy's back, there's like bone jutting out from his back and there Mm -hmm. are wounds that look like where the wings should be. Right. So this creature that is supposedly the angel or whatever tells Kirby that his existence is tied to the film. So if all of the films were destroyed, then he wouldn't exist any longer. Precisely. So this creature is saying, since I'm still alive, alive, there's still a copy. That's why Bellinger thinks there's a copy of the film somewhere. Well, I mean, that's a pretty brutal logic. It's kind of true, though. That's the thing. That is the thing. It's so... He goes and talks to one of the film critics who was originally there, who has been writing their review of the film ever since. Like still working on it? Like still working on it. There, are, He goes to this guy's, this film critic's place, and there are stacks of, of thousands and thousands of pages of paper. Each page is a page of the review. That's how long the review is. Well, shit, this guy must not be on a deadline. No, it's it's so wild. It's, it's, re- it's a really odd film, but it's also very good. Mm. And it has some good effect work to it. Cool. Like, there's one bit where somebody feeds their intestines into a film projector. Okay. It's done very well. I'm, I mean, that's one way to get a shit film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're such a dork. Oh, it hurts. Why would you do that to yourself? I, I, it, I don't know. All right. So the last film I want to talk about is called Pro-Life. Mm. 2006 also written by drew and scott also scored by cody right uh so the cast includes caitlin wax as angelique the only main things i could find for her she was chloe on profiler okay and she was rebecca on the tv show commander in chief okay emmanuel vagier or vagier i'm not sure how her name is pronounced uh plays kim she was addison in saw two all right uh, she was also Ebony on Lost Girl and Nikki on One Tree Hill. Okay, cool. Mark Fierstein as Alex. He was Clifford Callie on The West Wing. Hmm. He was also on Hank Lawson on the show Royal Pains. Yeah, yeah, That yeah, USA yeah. did back in the day. Oh, yeah. Uh, then we have Ron Perlman as Dwayne. Everyone I, knows who Ron Perlman is. Yeah, either by voice or by look, whether it's Hellboy or Fallout. Yep. Uh, and then Derek Mears as the father is the character's name. Mm-hmm. Derek Mears, mostly known for like effect work and stunt stunt work. Mm-hmm. He actually was uh, Jason in the 2009 Friday the 13th. Okay. The one where Jason fucking runs and throws axes and the, shit. The one with Jared Padalecki in it? Yes. Okay. Motivated Jason. Motivated Jason, yes. So the plot of pro-life, Angelique, believing she was raped by a demon and is pregnant with his child, goes to the local women's clinic to terminate the pregnancy. Okay. Kim and Alex, who are a nurse and a doctor at the clinic, respectively, believe she was actually assaulted by a member of her family 
and has concocted this demon story as a way to cope with her trauma. Okay. Because she's she's lives in a very religious family. Her mom's dead. It's just her and her dad and her three brothers. Hmm. So because she's lived such an isolated life, they're like, this demon story is clearly bullshit. It was probably her dad or one of her brothers. And she's just trying to... This demon story is her trying to cope with the trauma of that. Right. However, as they start to run more tests, it becomes clear that this is a normal pregnancy and there's something really wrong with this fetus. Hmm. Because, like, they ask her, like, when did this happen? How f- And her story doesn't line up with how far along her pregnancy is. Right. It's a lot more rapid. Exactly. It's much more rapid. Outside the clinic is Dwayne, Angelique's religious gun-toting father, who is determined to, quote, rescue his daughter from the clinic after hearing the voice of God telling him to save the baby. Mm-hmm. He... He plans an all-out assault on the clinic intent on doing God's will and killing anyone who gets in his way. So, several Class A felonies. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's a very, very... It's it's good. Yeah. It's interesting. Because the cool thing about it... Oh my god, the fucking look. The fucking look on Dwayne's face when he realized how badly he's fucked up. Because, as you can imagine with the way that this horror stories and stuff worked and and the way that i've said things it turns out angelique's not lying (laughs) she literally literally was pulled into the ground and sexually assaulted by a demon and is now pregnant with a demon baby yeah it's not just a euphemism anymore it's not a euphemism it's literal (laughs) and the voice of god that Dwayne thought he was hearing was not god Mm. it was the demon (laughs) And when he realizes that he's actually been doing the work of a demon instead of God, oh no, the look on his face. So good. (sighs) It's like, ha ha ha, you fucked up, Dwayne. This one also does feature an extremely brutal death for one of the doctors at the women's clinic, who essentially has an abortion performed on him by Dwayne and one of his sons. But since it's, since I've said he for this particular doctor, you can imagine. (laughs) South Park, the stick of truth. No. No? No. No. I don't think on Stick of Truth they made an opening with a scalpel. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you can think about male biology and consider what all that means. I'd rather not think about what that means. I'm I'm entering pucker level five now. You're welcome. Full defenses are engaged. (laughs) Ooh. Yeah, that's... That's that's a level of, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's not it's it's good. I liked it because it causes pretty much everybody involved, whether regardless of what side of the abortion debate you're on, it causes everybody involved in the film to question their beliefs. Right. Which I think is neat. If you can cause people on both sides to think about whether or not what they're doing is good or bad, or to question whether or not what they believe is the right thing. I think that's great, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. All right, so that is all I have. I have one fun fact. What's your fun fact? Is this a fun fact about a movie or about the man himself? This is a fun fact about John Carpenter. Ooh, and, yeah. And, and I will let you all debate this out in, in the world. Okay. He's technically won an Oscar. And by technically, I mean the film he worked on won an Oscar. Okay. When he was... Attending USC in 1970, 
he and some classmates made a movie called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. Carpenter was responsible for the editing, composing, and co-writing the film. So he did the music, he did the editing, he co-wrote it. Yes. So if your film wins an award, that's your award, yeah? I mean, I think so. I think technically. I think the, I think the actual statuette itself goes to, it, it, for something like that, I think it technically goes to the director. I don't know, though. Well, it went on to win an Academy Award for Best Short Subject. However, Carpenter and the company didn't get any recognition at all. The school did. Because it was while they were at school. Yeah. So it was technically the property of USC. Well, the lecturer actually got to bring in the statuette uh-huh. and let everybody see it. Oh, neat. But having put your blood, sweat, and tears into something, and basically, I mean, without a, a score, half the script, and editing, you don't have a film. Yeah, fair. So as far as I'm concerned, he won that Oscar. Yeah, Carpenter, typically, he's not a fan of working with studios and the, uh, some of the bureaucracy that goes along with oh the bullshit. filmmaking. Yeah, he's not a fan of that. That's why typically he will he will produce his own films if he can or find, find a friend to help him out. Well, he also likes to work quickly on films. Mm-hmm. So you involve a studio, you're actually adding tons of time to, to that because... There's... T- well, and the red tape and just so much that's involved with all of that, I'm sure, is daunting. Ugh, I don't know. So... We love you, John. Yeah, I wish he would make more stuff. The last film he did, people didn't like, but I thought it was fine. Which one was that? The Ward. Oh, okay. That's the one with um, Amber Heard, Mm. where she's in a mental asylum with a bunch of other girls. Okay. And there's like, they think the place is haunted. Well, I mean, again, you can't make all winners. Yeah. Well, and he, he, he is involved with the new Halloween films. So there is that. But, you know. Fair. All right. So that is going to do it for us this week. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at H2HorrorCast. You can send us your film recommendations at H2HorrorCast at gmail.com. We have a Patreon. We are patreon.com slash H2HorrorCast. If you want to support us financially, help us get more equipment or not more equipment, better equipment, I guess. Being able to afford video rentals when we have to pay to watch something like we did this week, all that kind of stuff. You can always be a patron there. The lowest level is $5. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Patreon, we want to say our shout out to our Patreon subscribers, Lizzie, a.k.a. Carnage Candy on YouTube, and Teresa, a.k.a. my mom. Hi. Hello. We love you both. We also have a Facebook page. Yes. His and Hers Horror. Our Facebook page is growing, actually. We've gotten a lot of likes the last week or two. I've been, I've been seeing that, too. That's that's neat. Yeah. If you would like to help us out in a way other than becoming a Patreon subscriber, because we know not everybody can, especially in the last year or so, not everybody can afford that kind of deal. Yeah, stuff's still pretty tight. Stuff is still tight. You can do a review for us on Apple Podcast. Yeah, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, don't don't hesitate to you know give us a rating. It really helps uh, with the algorithms. Uh, also, if you if you rate us, don't be afraid to write some comments. It's okay. Yeah, you don't have to just give us the stars. You can say words. Because I mean, you you give me five stars. It's like okay, okay. Is what it, what did you like? Are there pros to us? Are there cons to us? Because we we want to make this the best show possible. We can't improve if people don't tell us what we what they like and don't like and as you can see this week's episode is proof if you give us constructive criticism and we agree 
with it or can take it to heart, yeah. we can change how the show's done and make it maybe a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like getting an A on a paper, but you don't see great job and you usually see great job. So you're like, okay, what did I do wrong? What did I do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think you might also be able to, to give us reviews on Google Podcast, but uh, I don't know. I'll have to look. Yeah, we'll, we'll check it out. Most of the platforms that we're on, there's not really a way to review. Either you're listening to it or you're not. Like, Spotify doesn't have a way to review things. There is a way to review by saying, hey, check out this podcast. That too, yeah. You can recommend us to a friend if they are into spooky content of varying degrees. Or your next road trip with someone who's never heard us? Mm-hmm. Pop, us pop us on. Exactly. There you go. I almost said pop us on. I think that's a type of chair. Pop us on? Pop us on? Yeah, I think so. Oh. I don't mean the chair. I mean... Pop us on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's enunciate, because we're professionals. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So until next time, I'm Tia. And I'm still David. And thank you for listening. Bye. Music for this episode was Out of Time by Shane Ivers of Silverman Sound. Our artwork was created by Catherine Nixon.